Welcome to You Sound Like a Girl. Hi, everybody. I'm Colleen, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am Emily Rose, and my pronouns are also she, her, hers. And you are listening to You Sound Like a Girl, a storytelling project that explores and elevates cis and trans women's stories about our voices. We aim to explore the social norms around cis and trans women's voices by investigating what it means to sound like a woman and what it means for women to use our voices. This episode is going to be a little different because we're going to be talking with Alexandria Jessica Smalls about the movie Molly's Game. Heads up, this episode will definitely be filled with spoilers, so if you want to avoid them, go watch the movie first and then come back and listen to the episode. Good call. All right. I'm super stoked to introduce today's guest, Alexandria Josika Smalls. Her pronouns are she, her, hers, and she's a Brooklyn native. She is an actress, a writer, a director, educator, and activist with a love for fashion and food. Mm. The work that brings her the most joy is when she's engaged in the topics that people shy away from, such as race, gender, social justice. We're definitely going to get into some of that in our conversation today. One of her favorite quotes is, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's where all the growth is. Alexandria believes that we can't begin to make the changes we want to see in the world unless we start having the conversations that no one wants to have. Some of her hobbies include singing karaoke with friends, watching documentaries, petting dogs, and crochet. Alexandria was in the 2019 production of You Sound Like a Girl. Since we all constantly consume media and pop culture, and since the portrayal of women and femmes in media often leaves a lot to be desired, we wanted to spend one of our episodes doing a deep dive into a movie and discussing how women and women's voices are portrayed in that movie. So what is the state of women in movies right now? Well, (laughs) according to an analysis of 2000 U.S. film dialogues since the 1980s, conducted by the digital data publication Polygraph, female voices aren't heard because there just aren't many opportunities to use them. Surprise, surprise. In some 15% of movies, over 90% of the lines were spoken by men. In contrast, in just 0.4%, of the movies were 90% of the lines spoken by women. Wow, that is a stark contrast. Another way that we can conceptualize the state of women in film is using the Bechdel test. The Bechdel test was created by comic artist Alison Bechdel, and her original criteria for a movie to pass the test were the movie has to have at least two women in it who talk to each other about something other than a man. You'd think it wouldn't be that hard, but you would think wrong. Since she first published the strip laying out all of these rules in 1985, actually, there have been lots of variants added to it. Sometimes it's known as the Bechdel-Wallace test. Some folks require that the women be named in order for the movie to pass the test. We're not going to talk a whole lot about this, but we do touch on it. So keep your ears open. We start talking about exactly how many other women even have lines or names in this movie. All right, so a quick plot summary so we're all on the same page. Molly's Game is a 2017 film written and directed by Aaron Sorkin of West Wing fame and starring Jessica Chastain. It is based on the autobiography of Molly Bloom, a young one-time Olympic-class skier who eventually came to run the world's most exclusive, high-stakes poker game before eventually being arrested by the FBI. 
players included Hollywood royalty, sports stars, business titans, and finally, unbeknownst to her, members of the Russian mob. The film follows her and her criminal defense lawyer, Charlie Jaffe, as they build a case to keep Molly out of jail and preserve her good name at the same time. Sweet. Let's get into it. Welcome, Alexandria. We're so excited to have you today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You actually don't know. (laughs) I was so excited to talk to you. And so we're talking about a movie. What movie did you bring to the table today? I brought Molly's Game. I liked it a lot and Idris Elba's in it. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Yes, the cast is out of this world. (laughs) But besides the amazing actors in it, what else spoke to you about it? I think I really saw myself in Molly because she was an overachiever, you know? She was a top skier. She was headed to the Olympics. You know, she got injured and that didn't work out for her. But, you know, she went on to get a bachelor's in poli-sci and a 3.9 GPA. She was summa cum laude. She had a top LSAT score. She was a beast and she was on a train to success. Like her father had pushed her onto that train and that's where she was headed straight to success. And then she decided to step off the track. I felt like I related to that. So you feel like in your own life, you've experienced that, like, I'm, I'm taking a different path. Like, I'm, I'm hanging a left here. Yeah. I always had this feeling like my success was not my own. Like, it wasn't for me. And I don't think I necessarily knew that's what, it, what the feeling was. But there was always this uneasiness. I was competitive. I was a good student. I was athletic. I have been in plays since I was in the second grade. Being an actor, being a performer, creating art, that's what I love doing. And I realized that my parents and my grandparents, they thought it was nice. They were proud to say, that's my baby and come to my shows every now and again. But no one was ever pushing me to rehearse or no one was signing me up for classes. It was kind of like, what a cute hobby that she happens to be good at. And what I got from them was like, you're so smart. You could be a doctor. You could be a lawyer. You could be anything you want to be in this world. But entertainment just wasn't one of those things. I don't think they respected it in the same kind of way. And so when I left high school and I went on to work in retail and I was always trying to work my way up from a sales associate to a supervisor to a manager to hopefully a store manager because what I had been taught was get a job, work hard, hopefully get a pension, raise your family, and then you know one day you'll get to retire. And so I wasn't happy. (laughs) I wasn't happy and I was in my late 20s and I decided to finally go back to school. And I went back to school to study drama and theater. And my family was disappointed. (laughs) They were just like, you went back to school to become an actor. Okay, you could have been great. You could have been a doctor. You could have been all these things. And I felt like the message I got was it was too late. I had waited too long to become someone great. And if at 28, you can't become a doctor, how do you think you're going to go and start this elusive acting career? But I, I felt like I had to give it a chance. I had given my whole life to this path that I thought was my own. I was like, here's a path I chose. I'm going to give it my all. And I went against all the, quote, better judgment and I made mistakes and it didn't look pretty. And I was broke <laughs> for so long. And, you know, I'm still not not broke, but it was my own path. And so when I saw that movie, I really connected to that idea of like, yeah, you had all these things set up for you, but if it's not what you want, are you really ever going to be happy? Amazing. Alexandria, thank you so much for sharing with us kind of what drew you to this movie in the first place. And now I kind of want to hear what you both thought about this movie. I know I have a lot of thoughts. Colleen, I'd love to start with you. Like general impressions, what'd you think? What stood out to you? Let's hear it. 
first impression, I really liked it. It's got kind of like heisty type energy, even though it's not actually a heist. I enjoy like watching poker. I understand poker. So I think that's helpful. (laughs) So I kind of understand the stakes of the game. And it's just a pretty amazing story about this woman in a man's world. And then on top of that, this real like claiming of the story and of the narrative right she she literally wrote a book and then on top of that there's the movie which she narrates the entire time and then it all comes down to you know whose names she says in court and whose names she doesn't and I thought although there are very few female characters in the story besides Molly it really is a woman's story and I I thought that was really interesting and then on top of that I am a little bit of like a celebrity gossip nerd and so like googling all of the real celebrities who were in this ring was very fun. (laughs) Also, I had to go and Google all of the Crucible stuff. I don't think I've read that since high school. So that was an interesting experience as well. So yeah, I think would in general recommend. As someone who was in the Crucible twice, that was one of my top cringiest moments of the movie when she was like, because it's my name. And I was like, no, why? I felt like I should have seen it coming when they foregrounded the crucible. Um, I'm impressed that you know anything about poker. Those were the scenes when I was totally lost. Alexandria, how about you? You talked about how you relate to this movie, but what'd you think of it? What else stands out to you about it? I think you're right, Colleen, right? There really weren't a lot of women in the movie. And I thought it was interesting because I was like, it's called Molly's Game. And yet there's all these men that are involved. But again, like you said, Colleen, it really was a man's world. And Molly was just living in it. And then she wasn't. And then she was running it, which I think that's the part that I really loved because she had this power for some point in time. Like she was this powerful woman who was running this man's world. They thought they were running it, but it really was her. So I think my impressions were that women are often put into like, you know, like the background or like we're quote unquote, he tried to make her play a small role. Like, do you remember Idris was like, we're just going to go in the courtroom and say like, you were a cocktail waitress and that'll get them off your case. And she was not having it. Like jail's on the table and she's like, no, 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 no. You're not going to tell them that I was a cocktail waitress. (laughs) This was mine. I ran it. I built it. I was a multimillionaire. You're not going to do that. That was one of the highlights for me. Yeah, I was really struck by that moment. Like, this is my career. I'm literally in federal court to defend myself against breaking federal law. But also, this was my job. And I did it well. And I want to be known for doing it well, even though it was illegal, which I was just like, wow. You both a little bit touched on a the idea that it's her story and she like has the power and b how few other women there are in the movie. And I think I took the opposite side of the coin about it being her story. I was like, this woman has decided what to tell and not to tell. She wrote the book that the screenplay is based on. She, in a sense, is determining the narrative. So I went and read up about it. I had read, I think it was an expose in Rolling Stone that I read when this was actually happening. And there were more women players. So I thought it was really interesting that the movie chose never to offer a single female player or even femme player, right? It's just all men at the table and women she's either running the game or like the waitresses or the bartender or the dealer i'd love to know what the two of you think that the movie chose to remove female players when we know that there were female players i think that that was very deliberate so aaron sorkin wrote and directed it right creator of the west wing he doesn't always have the best track record for his female characters 
So it almost felt to me like he was like, this is it. I have my female protagonist. I have a movie about a woman. There are going to be no other women because I just want to highlight how amazing this one singular woman is. And, you know, it reminds me of, and I don't know if you guys are fans of rap, but I am. And it reminds me of the rap game and how, you know, there's all these male rappers and no one ever says, there can only be one. But when it comes to women, it's like Little Kim versus Foxy Brown and Cardi B versus Nicki Minaj. You know, we don't ever have that with men. And so I think it was the same kind of thing. If we put another woman in there, they'll lose focus. We have to just focus on Molly. <laughs> you know, we flooded the movie with men and we were able to keep up with their stories easily. But, you know, it would have just been too much to have even two women. <laughs> One of the things that I read is that when she came to New York, she had a partner. So, right, the movie portrays her as, like, this one-woman show. But I read that she had a partner, and it was a man. And the man is the one who was like, we need to rake the game, which I didn't know that term before this, but it, it's taking a percentage of the pot for yourself, like, as the house. And I thought that was really fascinating that they chose to flip that so that, really, the only other substantial woman in the movie is the dealer who kind of quote unquote mentors her or is like, honey, you got to get on board and I guess keeps it real with her. So he chose to make that character a woman and she literally had an initial. She was just B, initial B. Well, that's so interesting because that specific scene, right, where the dealer is like, you got to take a cut, like you are putting yourself at risk. You are the house. That scene ended and I was like, ding, 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 passes the Bechdel test. But now that you tell me that she doesn't have a name, it doesn't pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> You know, I hadn't even considered that, that they flipped the role and then she was just B. You're right. That's kind of wild. Well, I guess the only other woman in the movie who has a name is uh, Idris's daughter. I don't remember her name, <laughs> but he does refer to her by her name. And we see, I think there's two scenes where she appears getting homework from him, essentially. But yeah, I think it's just Molly and his daughter that have names, right? I think the secretary who replaces Molly working for the real estate guy, I'm not sure what job he's supposed to have. I think she says, I'm so-and-so. Molly's like, cool. And she's like, I need the name of the players. And Molly's like, cool, they're in my car. Be back in a minute. I think that's the only other woman whose name we learn that there's an exchange with. I don't know what the mom's name is. Honestly, the mom was like such a like a character that wasn't even really existing. Like she spoke a few times, but it was really about her dad. And you're right. I really can't remember the daughter's name. And that's terrible. But I will give the daughter credit, though, because I watched it the first time and didn't notice. But the second time that I watched it, I realized that he said the only reason why I even took your case is because my daughter was reading your book. And she thought that you deserved a chance. And she said, like, they're taking this woman down. And I thought, wow, they put a little bit of power into this little person. She's like, you know, a daughter. And they put this, like, big power into her. So I thought that was cool. That's a little saving grace. <laughs> I also wanted to say there is significant male gaze happening. There are a lot of moments where she comes into the room and there are a bunch of literal heads turning to look at her. There are two men explicitly who like have a one-on-one -on -one with her where they're like, I love you. Or like, I want you to come to Cabo. But there is explicitly no sexual scene. There is no sexual harassment shown, like groping, any of these kinds of things. I just want to know what you all thought about that. 
You know, I think it's interesting because I'm sure that what happened in that that room when that guy's like, come with me to Kabul, I'm sure it was more intense than that. I'm pretty sure there was a lot more harassment and sexual assault because unfortunately, I feel like that almost comes with the game of being like a, like a solo woman in this man's world. Men think they can just pounce. But I think there's that scene with Dean Keith, the, the real estate agent or whoever he's supposed to be, like when he said about the bagels, she toned that down. And so like, if you're toning down him, like using some really like racist profanity, like what else are you toning down? Right? I totally agree. And it was an interesting choice on the writer director's part to not have any real sexual content at all. Although like, most of the women are dressed in a very specific way to accentuate their bodies. But it did feel a little bit like her controlling the narrative. I can't let go of the fact that this is based on a book. And so it's literally her own story. And you could argue like, oh, is she a reliable narrator? But I don't really care. It's her story to tell. It's her experience to claim. Um, And if she doesn't want to emphasize or dwell on any of those more sexualized experiences, then like, I think that's kind of great. One of the reasons that it stood out to me, right, she's an intellectual. It's very clear to us, like Alexandria mentioned, they call out that 3.9 GPA. She has these great LSATs. The beginning is just her being like, here's how I'm awesome and here's how I'm smart and here's how I'm smart, which is great. But the screenplay is then written by this very intellectual writer and is directed as, you know, Aaron Sorkin's very intellectual approach to his work. And for me, what ended up happening is I didn't feel like the character on screen was a whole person it was like she's smart she's somewhat distant right she's not actually in the game it's called molly's game but she's literally Mm -hmm. on the side she may be kind of controlling the situation she's not involved in the action and there is explicitly a scene where she's like toby mcguire took the game away from me and now i've hit this emotional thing and i'm gonna go see a therapist But actually, never mind. I don't want to like therapy this. I just want to get revenge. So the movie actively is like, we could go down this emotional route and actually explore her as an emotional being. And we have decided not to, right? I haven't read the book. So I don't know if that's in the book slash if that happened in real life, like these three versions of things. But I was really missing who is she as a person? I I had no idea other than like Alexandria was saying, like, she's smart. She's a successful skier. She knows how to work the system. But like, who, who is she as a human? I had absolutely no idea. I kind of disagree in terms of like feeling like she was flat or um, feeling like there was something lacking. I think twofold. One, it rang very true to me in knowing that she is an Olympic athlete because I know a handful of very competitive athletes and I run a lot. And that is a type of personality that I think is very true to that type of a person where it's just like really compartmentalizing, not giving into emotions, being very analytical about things. So that just rang true to me as opposed to flat. But I think the other thing is oftentimes as a woman, (laughs) we're not allowed to show those emotions. And I think a lot of successful women, for better or for worse, really gave up the ability to be considered emotional or to embrace their emotions or feel their emotions. And so it just kind of felt truthful to the character that they were constructing, which is this very driven person who is finding herself in this environment that doesn't want her to succeed any environment an Olympic environment frankly doesn't want her to succeed because there can only be one winner and also this poker game which is this male dominated arena also doesn't want to see her in power and Toby Maguire or player x definitely doesn't want to see her in power so 
it rang truthful to me. I think those are good points, Colleen. I don't know anyone who was headed to the Olympics, so that's really dope that you know some really competitive people. <laughs> I guess that is a personality type. Because at first I was like, yeah, Emily, you're right. Why is she like desexualized? But it's also fair to say that maybe she was just really private about whatever it was that she did. And that really goes into the character that, that she was. But you're right. She could have gone to therapy. We could have seen her on an emotional level, just hit an arc of some kind. So you both are right. Since we mentioned therapy, would anyone like to talk about their impressions, starting from the Kevin Costner therapy session at the end? I think the therapy session at the end was supposed to be this like redemption, like they mend their relationship and he just monologued, right? And she just sat there and listened. And I was like, you're not even going to listen to your daughter right now. Like talk about silencing someone. And I don't know about you guys, but I barely heard an apology in there. I feel like who she is today is because her father made her that way. And yes, he made her successful, but like what he did in his marriage, it affected her and he never talked about it with her. And he still wasn't apologizing for it. Like, in my opinion, I don't think I heard an apology. Your formative years form you into the human that you become. And like, he was a big part of that. And I don't think he really took the responsibility I wanted him to take for that. I will say there was one quote that he said specifically, your addiction was having power over powerful men, which I was like, okay, this is interesting. Are you going to relate this back to yourself? Because dad, it's your fault that she feels that way. And then he just drops it. He's a terrible therapist. I was not into it. Yeah, I will say for me, after Idris Elba gave his like crowning, again, like I'm speaking for my client speech and impressed the heck out of the prosecutors, the movie went like straight downhill for me. I was like along for the ride the first three quarters of this movie. But then it was like Idris Elba spoke for her and told her to go get dinner. And then dad was telling her the answers. And she was like, I'm not going to listen to this. And he was like, sit down. And then she just sat down. And even when she went into court and the judge was like, well, the plea that you've agreed to, I'm not down with it. Instead, we're going to do this. And it's like the movie wants you to think each of those things is in her favor. But it was still very like damsel in distress. She can't get herself out of this. All the men in the story are now going to quote unquote save her. And I felt like it really took the steam out of the rest of the movie for me. I was very frustrated at the end. I don't know. I could have definitely done without the dad therapy session at the end. But I don't think the movie is telling us like, and she broke out of the clutches of men and she conquered, right? Like that's not the moral of the story. It's that she fucking persevered. Like at the end, she's like, the moral of the story is I'm really hard to kill. Right? <laughs> like, And so specifically, right, the end in the courtroom scene where Idris Elba, her lawyer, who is a man, is speaking for her and the judge, who is a man, and literally everyone else in the court is a man, pretty much except for her or the stenographer. (laughs) But speaking for her and like deciding her fate, I was like, oh, yeah, like she can't escape. She can only survive, which is not necessarily the most optimistic (laughs) or happy ending. But it did ring a little truthful to me just in terms of the life that she had been leading and the survival that she had been fighting for. I was hoping that in the end, she would have a little more, I don't know, like just autonomy, because I think throughout the movie, she was kind of like a punching bag for men, right? Like 
Dean Keith gave her this job as an assistant. And then he kind of pushed her into being like this runner of games and holding money, like tens of thousands of dollars for these people who are playing this underground game. And she was getting tips. And then he was like, yeah, okay, well, now I'm not paying you anymore to do the assistant job because you're getting paid so well here. And then he took that job from her. And then she had her own job. And then Player X slash Tobey Maguire took that job from her or Bad Brad threw her under the bus in his deposition. Like whenever men decided they were done with her or like she wasn't doing things their way, they were like, and now you're finished and I'm taking the rug from underneath you. And I was really just hoping like, you're right, Emily. She said, this is it. I'm going down for it. I'm going to plead guilty. I did it. And then even that was like, and no. And so I was just really hoping she would have a little bit more, I don't know, autonomy. I didn't read the book, so I don't know if, you know, it all happened in that same way, but I wonder. Yeah, I, so I haven't read the book either. I don't think any of us have. <laughs> but there was like a very brief scene with her like quote unquote publisher that just like got thrown in there. It felt a little random, but I was grateful for the conversation because it at least put to page or put to screen what I had been thinking the whole time, which is like, the story is who she is. The publisher literally says like, your only asset is your story. And so in that way, I suppose you can read it as somewhat triumphant, right? Like she's making a lot of money off of this book and off this movie and off this story. And I don't know that Bad Brad is making any money off of it. I hope not. (laughs) And so like, I mean, yes, do I wish that she was a little bit more triumphant or autonomous in the end? 100%. But at the end of the day, also, we wouldn't have the movie if it wasn't for her. The story wouldn't exist. She's the one who chose to put it on paper and put it into the world. So I feel like in that way, choosing to tell the story is the saving herself. I also will give her credit because I think who she is as a a human, you know, she didn't want to throw people under the bus. And I feel like she was willing to take the rap for all these men despite the things that they weren't doing for her, the way that they weren't stepping up for her and saving her, it was still a part of her character to say, like, I'm not going to tell their secrets. And so even in her book, she didn't divulge things that she said could break families and like ruin careers. So I really, I do give her that. My manager, who's Latinx, says by POC individuals should be able to be mediocre. We shouldn't have to be better than everyone else. We shouldn't have to be like perfect in order to be likable. And we shouldn't even have to be likable, right? And I feel similarly about women. The way it's portrayed in the movie, right? We still have these removes from reality. We have whatever actually happened. We have the remove from reality that is the book. And then we have the remove from the book and reality that is the movie. So the movie portrays her as the martyr, right? These men are like, give me more credit. Let me have more chips. And she's mothering them and being like, I think you need to go home. I think you need to tell your wife what's going on. We'll talk about it tomorrow and like how you can pay me back. She's so understanding and she wants to help them and she's not taking anything for herself. And then it's like at the end of the movie, it's the same thing over again where it's like, no, I'm going to be the quote unquote good person. Like I'm not going to ruin people's lives. I'll be destitute to save my name. Meanwhile, the game continued without her. All these men were still making money. Idris Elba is kind of like, where the hell are all these people who were in your game? You're concerned about ruining their lives and they don't give a shit about you. Why are you falling on your sword like this for people who would not do the same for you? The answer is because like, she must be a likable woman. She can't be like, fuck that. I want the money. Yeah, I'll give you their names. Give me my money back. I'm going to live like a millionaire. The world tells us that the person who takes the money and lives well, that's success. 
That's what all these other men are doing. But she, as pretty much the only female character, she has to be the symbolic moral victor. So she doesn't get to reap any benefits in real life, but she is given this moral victory for sacrificing herself for other people who don't deserve it. And to me, like, I'm tired of that narrative where it's like, instead of coming out on top, you should sacrifice yourself for people who would never do the same. I think that bothered me. Yeah, I definitely hear you, Emily Rose. I don't know. It's really hard because I struggle with that, right? And I think it's because of the society we grow up in where women are supposed to like pretty much take it on the shoulder. (laughs) Just like whatever happens, like bear it, bear the brunt and whatever situation it is. And so when I see that and I'm like, I give that to her because yeah, that's what society wants you to be. And like, that's who she decided she was going to be. Like she was gonna be a woman of her word. But you're right. Like, why the heck? can't we like come out on top like like why I mean so many of these men were like living their lives like they took the money and ran like you're right the game went on without her men were still making money still doing illegal things not going to jail and here she was going to jail and the reality is if she'd have done it any other way the mob could have been after her like anything could have happened to her and so her literal safety depended on her quote-unquote having moral character and that's what I think bothers me about it is that like you know I'm glad she did it for herself but it bothers me that she has to do that in order to survive in this world you know so we have to do I completely agree with you Alexandra it does feel a little bit like a a survival choice to act in this way in order to be perceived in a way that people find favorable right which is absolute shit but this is the society we live in so part of me is like well don't you want to be the hero of your own story like this is the story she's writing so like wouldn't you write yourself in a good light because I certainly would (laughs) again it's like is she a super reliable narrator I don't know. Like, I think that it was a very specific choice that the the story we were being told is of her being this very saintly martyr who just wants to take care of everyone and gets pushed into the illegal actions, but she didn't really want to do it. And it's like, I'm sure in reality, or at least I hope in reality, she is a more <laughs> well-rounded human being with a full spectrum of feelings and emotions, including like anger and vengeance. But she's trying to sell a product and the product is herself. Yeah, I'm actually really glad that we watched this movie. It gave me so much to think about, not just in terms of the story, but like the integrity of the art form of the film itself, which is like a great exercise to remind myself that like form follows function. The form that we're so used to seeing is there to reinforce certain narratives. There's so many shots of her counting money and it's just like boobs and money, even though we talked about like she had no sexuality, right? She had no love life. She had no friends. She had no relationship with her family until two scenes from the end. But like there's a lot of that male gaze in there in every shot. And even the characters in the movie versus the actual people who are involved in this story in real life. So her lawyer was white. The judge who sentenced her was white. And Barara, who's not white, was the prosecutor in New York who was going after her. So they managed to flip this so that the two white guys essentially stood for the prosecutor's office, the DA in New York. And here she is defended by a black man of phenomenal character, right? Oh, I don't want anyone who's the least bit shady. So here we have this amazing looking black intellectual this lawyer who is beyond reproach and then on the bench we have this american indian actor playing the judge so you have like 
this damsel in distress, thin, wayfish white woman who doesn't speak for herself except to say like, yes, sir, no, sir. And you have this like black man of great character defending her. And then you have this again, like another quote unquote other, right? Not a white man, an American Indian man being like, no, this sentence is not good. We're going to give you something better. We're going to save you. And it kind of made me think like, we, the audience, are supposed to think this Black man likes her and is defending her, and this American Indian is defending her like she must be good. Their goodness will save her and endows her with goodness. I think for me, race is something I can't escape. Like, I'm a Black woman. I'm a Latina woman. And so, like, when I'm watching a movie, I'm always, like, counting, like, <laughs> counting, like, you know, the people of color or the, the visibly people of color, right? It is a very strong choice to say you're going to make a black man her lawyer and like her savior. And I, I will probably admit that I probably wouldn't have watched the movie had Idris Elba not been on the front of like the little screen. Like Idris was there. I was like, Idris is here. He's her lawyer. I'm going to watch it. And so it was almost like this like trap. You know, like, why should you feel bad for this white woman who was a multimillionaire running this illegal like gambling operation? Like, why do you feel bad for her? Well, this black man. This awesome black man thinks she is great. And I was like, wow, no, like, y'all got me. <laughs> I wasn't going to watch this movie. But like, if you think about it, there really weren't a lot of other black characters in the movie. Everyone was pretty much white, except for these two characters and his daughter. Again, I think it's one of those things where you go like, oh, let's make sure we check a box. Great. People of color, check. And I think also knowing that it's Aaron Sorkin at the helm and his work is very, very white and he has received criticism for this in the past. It did feel, again, like he was like, this is my opportunity. I'm going to cast a Black man as this heroic character. Like, no one will be able to give me any sort of flack for that. I think the only other person of color or who was meant to be a person of color was the, the art dealer in New York, right? He, like, comes in with the Monet. <laughs> they call him by a nickname, which is, I believe, a Middle Eastern name. But then his ethnicity doesn't even matter. His race doesn't matter. He's just another player. And so the only people whose race we like really, I think, acknowledge are these heroes or these saviors. And she and um, what's his name? The Irish guy. Chris O'Dowd. Thank you. Yes. He keeps bragging about I'm the only Irish guy they'll let play, right? Yeah, I found the Chris O'Dowd conversation very bizarre. Like, well, I'm Irish and I get to play with the Russians. I don't know. It's like, oh, all my friends are black. I'm the only white person they'll hang out with, right? It's like this badge of honor that he's wearing. I don't know. And then does Aaron feel some sort of need to emphasize that she's Jewish? I got the impression she was lying. So she's like, I'm not Irish. I'm a Russian Jew. She wasn't like, I'm Jewish. She was like, just tell them I'm one of them because I am one of them, right? I talk money. Money is my heritage. Money is my language. It's just this currency that she's using to get into their game. Then I want to be like, you know, bad on Aaron Sorkin because that's freaking anti-Semitic to be like, I speak money. I'm Jewish. Like, that's bad fucking writing cut that shit no to me it felt like yet another i am a character with no actual roots no actual identity no actual emotional core right like she tells chris o'dowd like i'm whoever you want me to be that's what that moment felt like for me when i was in school i also studied africana studies and i'm just thinking about this piece it was called whiteness as property and i was just thinking like 
yeah, like her whiteness can be whatever she decides to make it. Like she's like, oh, you thought I was Irish? That was working when it was working, but it's not working anymore because guess what? I'm a Russian Jew. And so I just thought about like, wow, the things that white women can get away with, like she can be anybody she wants to be in the world. <laughs> it's so hard for me not to think about those things. I'm just like, whiteness is property. Oh, property I'll never own. <laughs> I 100% agree with you. I think that's exactly what's happening. Oh, yeah. I mean, right. One, this like movie, but two, like this lived experience would never have happened to a woman of color. The opportunities that Molly is able to just like step into or finagle for herself never, ever, ever would have happened for a woman of color. And the movie does not acknowledge that in any way, shape or form. And regardless of the race of the actor who plays the judge in the movie, the reality is that basically this woman got community service and a fine. She didn't commit a violent crime, but she broke the law. And she got rich breaking the law. And she was this kind of crux or this like the center of the Venn diagram between all of these people doing illegal and violent things. And she was benefiting from that. And New York was like, okay, do some community service. We'll see ya. And when you think about that mother, the Black woman, who actually went to jail for changing her address so that her child could go to better school... It's like, this is the quote-unquote justice that is meted out here. And I think that's why it bothers me that she is portrayed in the film as a martyr and a saint. In reality, she's someone with a lot of money and a lot of privilege. And she walked away essentially without a scratch. Yeah, when I heard the community service, I won't lie. Like I was like, damn, she's got community service? I mean, I, I heard it. I was like, yeah, she probably shouldn't go to jail because she wasn't a part of the mob. But like, that's a perfect example. I think about that woman all the time. I think she was in Chicago or something like that. She went to jail because she tried to get her daughter a better education. And this woman is getting community service. And she was literally like hosting pretty much like illegal, quote unquote, not illegal, like gambling rings. And those opportunities would never have been given to a woman of color. Like even from the way it started, Dean... Keith, whoever he was in real life, I don't remember. Like, he was clearly racist. He said racist things. Like, he was never going to give a woman of color that opportunity, you know. And, and she came from, like, she came from a family of wealth. So I think it was, like, kind of a far stretch to just be like, and, and now I'm supposed to be happy that she got community service because they were all trying to, like, dupe her in the end. I feel like that circles back to her wanting to sell her story and wanting to sell herself. And it's like, well, I... I have a lot of privilege. I already had a lot of money compared to a lot of people. And then I got even more money and was leaving the, leading this incredibly lavish lifestyle. I really need my audience to feel bad for me in order to like profit off of this. So I need to paint myself as the saint who is trying to save everyone that I can and throwing myself under the bus. Yeah. I think this has been a really great conversation. Are there things we haven't talked about that either of you want to talk about? The one thing I will just add that I kept noticing, so she narrates it and she is highly educated. And so she quotes a lot of people. We talked about the crucible and that quote at the end. And she also, I believe, quotes Winston Churchill at the end. And I was like, oh, all men. I'm pretty sure she only quotes men throughout the movie. And I was like, this is an interesting choice, Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> um, I chalk that up to, to Aaron's writing more so than like the character. It felt like it was 
written and directed by this white man who is very intellectual and this was his voice just kind of coming through and I was like I could have done without that. I also wondered why the whole bagel conversation was in the movie. It was never resolved. She's like, oh, poor people bagels. And then Idris Elba is like, no, this is what she actually said, which is like a racial slur. And he's like, why'd you change it? And she says to him, I promise you it doesn't matter or it couldn't matter less or something. And then that's the last we ever heard of that. And I... I had no idea why we had that moment. I didn't know what Idris Elba's character was supposed to take from that. Like what she's protecting people from the N-word. To me, that's like, oh, you don't want to paint this guy as a racist son of a bitch. So you've subbed in poor people. That, like, that's what I would take from it. But somehow, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what he got out of it. I don't know why it was in the movie. Does anyone know? I almost feel like... It was a throw to like, if you know this person, you know this person. Because it just kept like, she would say something. He's like, oh, I know who you're talking about. And so I feel like it kind of like threw it in there to be like, I didn't mention him in the book. And I'm not really saying what his name is here. And maybe you don't even know who he really is. But if you know, you know. (laughs) I could be wrong. But I would like to believe that they were throwing someone under the bus silently. (laughs) I do think it also ties it back to her being this savior, right, of other people. Like her trying to not share people's names because she doesn't want to destroy lives. Right at the beginning of the movie, she says like everybody's names have been changed or there's something about that. And then on top of that, the actual story is that she won't release anyone's names unless they've already been named in Bad Brad's deposition. But so I feel like it was another piece of that puzzle where it's like, I don't want to destroy his life if I don't have to. People don't need to know that he's a racist. I experienced it, but nobody else needs to. And it's like, yeah, it it did feel a little odd. One last thing. I can't say enough times how bad a taste the Kevin Costner monologue left in my mouth. In the moment when he was like, I knew that you knew, by which he meant, I knew you had seen me cheating on your mother. I knew that you knew. And she was like, I didn't know. And he's like, you didn't know that you knew, but you knew. And for me, that was potentially the grossest moment of the whole movie was this idea that like her dad, who didn't listen to her, right? She says she's in pain. Something's wrong. He doesn't listen to her. She says, I would like to stop for the evening. I'm tired. And he says like, what's a synonym for tired? Weak. Okay, now you can go home. Who's like so emotionally manipulative doesn't listen to her, doesn't trust her own feelings about herself. The whole movie goes by about her like rising to this power. And then it's like, oh, actually your dad knows you better than you know you. And for me, that just felt really gross. And I did not see how that served the story at all. Did that happen in real life? I kind of doubt it. Seems kind of absurd. The whole ending seemed kind of absurd to me. But even if it did, even if we give it the benefit of the doubt, That like the dad showed up and like, that's definitely in character. This is a movie and you changed 87 other things from real life. You couldn't have changed that. And it ends with her like celebrating with her overachieving family. And I was like, this dad's been cheating on your mom. There's your mom. We don't know that she has a name. I think she had one line where she was like, no, you cheat on me. She's in the video when they show Molly getting up after her skiing accident. 
the announcer is like, oh, she's there with her coach and there's her dad. The mom is also there. The announcer does not say, and her mom. So the mom is just like kind of out of focus, literally on the screen all the time. She's at this joyous dinner at the end. It just felt like, where is the person who actually cares about any of these characters as people to be like, no, this man's an asshole. Walk away from that. This isn't success sitting here with your family who treats you like this. That's not success. Walk away from that. Like, it's all about finding your own path. But then the movie ends with success is all of us around the table together, not acknowledging that this is a nightmare. Emily Rose, like you, you're spot on with it. Like, and I just want to say that it, it kind of makes me um, feel a little bit better that we did this because I literally can't watch a movie without like seeing all the downfalls. And I'm like one of the worst people to watch movies with one, because I'm an actor <laughs> two because I'm like, I'm like such a stickler for things. I'm like continuity's off. That cup was half full the first time. Like I'm one of those people and like, I will tear a plot to shreds and so I'm so glad to know that other people tear plots to shreds <laughs> and I'm not the only like negative Nancy like watching a movie like guys this wasn't as great as you thought it was. I want to say first of all we're going to call it negative Ned from now on we're not gonna give the negatives ladies names but this is the kind of movie that I love to watch because I want to talk about like why were these choices made and here's what it made me think and feel. I think especially because if I'd seen this movie when I was 14, I would have been like, oh, I love this movie. Like, it's so great. And like Idris Elba gives this big speech and Kevin Costner like actually did a good job acting. And I love Graham Greene. I love him. And I think at 14, I would have been like, oh, this movie. And I, I think now I want to look behind the curtain and be like, why did we make these choices? And who decided this? Just, I guess, question more. So I hope that it doesn't come off as me being like, this is a terrible movie. Because I actually thought it was a quite a good movie, which is why I wanted to break down like what's going on in this movie. And I feel like it's also this perfect, perfect maybe is the wrong word, but this wonderful intersection of this woman's story being written and directed by this man who is, I don't know, like a man's man, white man director known for that type of content. And so obviously because of that intersection, it's going to be flawed, but also there's so many like jewels and nuggets in it also to like excavate that. Yeah. I feel like it's just very rich, rich and flawed. It can be both. We can contain multitudes. I hope one day to have a t-shirt that says rich and flawed. That's our first podcast shirt. Rich and flawed, I would love to be that. <laughs> this has been such a phenomenal conversation. Thank you both so much. It was great to get to talk about movies, talk about gender, talk about race, talk about socioeconomic status and class and all that fun, maybe isn't the right word, but all of that interesting, rich and flawed stuff. So uh, now that we're bringing this to a close, I'm going to hand it over to Colleen to tell us what are we talking about to close out? each episode we as our hosts and also we ask our guests to uh, give our listeners a recommendation of a woman's voice that spoke to them this week so um alexandria who spoke to you this past week i have two women of course i couldn't just choose one we are just over a week out from the new president and vice president elect so kamala harris is um hot on my mind um as well as ruby bridges who just, you know, this past weekend, um, the 60th anniversary of, you know, her desegregating schools in Louisiana came up and they've been doing a lot of highlights on Ruby Bridges. 
And these two artists who were out in, in California did like a combination of the shadow of Ruby Bridges when she was six years old. And then Kamala Harris is walking right next to that shadow. And I just thought it was so smart. And they, they did it long before, you know, she actually became the vice president elect, but it just like boomed. And it's such an important photo. And so I just think like these two women like making strides and literally making history just about 60 years apart. I thought it was a really smart piece. And so I just, those are two women who are hot on my mind. They're black women and they're just, yeah, they're making strides. So those are my two women. Amazing. And Emily Rose, who do you have to bring this week? So I have Cheryl Strayed. Some of you may know her as Dear Sugar. If you don't know her as Dear Sugar, I highly recommend you get to know her. The first book of hers that I read is called Tiny Beautiful Things from when she was, I guess, an advice columnist, like a Dear Abby. But the stories that she's hearing and how she shares herself and also welcomes in everyone who's writing to her, it's very transformative. I'm going to cry just talking about it. Every time I'm feeling despondent or low anything unmotivated I go back to that book and I highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't read it she also wrote wild um, which I haven't read but a friend of mine texted me to say that dear sugar her advice columnist self is back and she has a substack so I had to get cool and figure out what a substack was um, but anyone can subscribe to it and I highly recommend that you do she's she's delightful amazing so this week, the voice that has been uh, speaking to me is uh, a bit of an older voice. Um, I'm going to uh, talk about Louisa May Alcott. For those who don't know, she wrote Little Women. So fun fact, in high school and college, I actually worked at the Little Women Museum in Concord, Massachusetts. So I have a very, you know, big piece of my heart there. But she is also just a badass woman, a huge feminist, you know, never got married, was financially independent, was one of the first women to vote in Concord. And the reason I'm recommending is so I happen to be rewatching all of Dawson's Creek right now. And I just watched the episode where they go to Harvard for a weekend to like do a little college trip. And Joey is like in this English class. And this, this teacher asks her like, what's a great American book? And she says, little women and everyone in class is like, oh, no, that's trash. That's a children's book. Like that's she's a classic American author, but she's not like a great author. And I was like, screw those people, <laughs> those fictional college students. Because she was just this amazing, very prolific human and had a lot of radical ideas for the time and worked her butt off and made some dreams come true. And yeah, if you haven't read Little Women, that's totally fine. It is technically a children's book, but at the very least, I think you should uh, Google her life. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing both your recommendations with us, Alexandria, and for recommending this movie in the first place uh, and kind of sharing your story with us. It's been so lovely to have you with us. Thank you all for having me. It was really a good time. Thank you. This was so fun. It's also so good to, to see your face, even if it's through a screen. <laughs> and thank you so much to all of you for listening. Our co-hosts are me, Colleen Hughes, and me, Emily Rose Pratz. I also edit our audio. Our music is Nice Girl, written and recorded by Reverend Yolanda. And one last huge thank you to our guest, Alexandria Josika Smalls.
You can keep up with Alexandria on social media by following her on Instagram at Alexa Muñeca. That's A-L-E-X-A-M-U-N-E-C-A. Or you can follow her on Twitter at Alexa Smalls. But just FYI, she's not keeping up with her Twitter so much these days. You can find You Sound Like a Girl at YouSoundLikeAGirl.com. You can email us at YouSoundLikeAGirl at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at YouSoundLikeAGirl. Catch you next time. Bye.